Thank you for supporting the media outreach of New Covenant Christian Ministries. Through the powerful preaching and teaching of Pastor Bill and Dr. Deanne Johnson, family relations are being restored. The wayward are returning to God. And together, we are transforming all people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Join us now for a message that will strengthen you in your faith and encourage you to be all that God has designed you to be. Why don't you open your Bibles this morning? We'd like to, uh, uh, to look at uh, leading in unprecedented times. What an 18 months we have experienced since March of 2020 all the way up to our current time. We call it unprecedented because, not because the world has not hit, been hit with global pandemics before. When they announced that we were in a global pandemic in 2020, I just Googled the word global pandemic and found out that there's been 16 plus global pandemics, some of them larger, some of them smaller, some of them a longer duration, some of them there. And I started reading what did people do during global pandemics? I found out that there were certain behaviors that helped to mitigate and minimize the pandemic. I found out that there were other behaviors that if you didn't do those, it will extend and sometimes even multiply and increase the global pandemic. People might say, well, why did God permit this? Genesis chapter three, third page in your Bible. He told the man that if you don't do what I tell you to do, you'll surely die. And judgment came upon the serpent. It came, consequences came on the man, the woman, and the earth. Y'all, Romans 8 tells us that the earth is groaning. So we should not be surprised by the things that are happening now. Not only has global pandemic happened, but isn't it interesting that we've had political division in our church, in, in our nation. And now that leaven has creeped into the church. Beware of the leaven of Herod. And the leaven of Herod is nationalism. And now there's such a mixture of the leaven of Herod nationalism inside the church that these are unprecedented times. A brother called me up one day and said, Lafayette, we're getting ready to pursue a public issue and you're a conservative, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Because people have even begun to now put adjectives in front of Christian. When did Jesus not become enough? That we had to put things that modify a noun, an adjective in front of our identity with Christ, the anointed, the anointed one and his anointed. When did Jesus not become enough? So there's not only a divide politically, but now the church is divided along political lines. But not only is it unprecedented times there, but many of us have known that there have been since the inception of our nation, people groups that were identified as human and then people that were identified in our constitution as part human. That's why I'm very leery of people that want to go back to being originalists and going back to the original constitution that said people that look like you and I are not fully human. And if you were not a property owner like the Native Americans, 
You aren't even human, fully human. And so though some people want to take us back, there's now been a division racially because of the public visible death of a man named George Floyd. And people start saying, well, that's just one incident but they didn't understand that African-Americans have been talking about some of this kind of behavior, not always, but talking about some of this kind of behavior. We call it in our city over-policing in our communities. And we've been talking about a long time and people say you're exaggerating. But then we discovered once cell phones came out, folks started recording stuff and found out it's not the exception but in some places and space, it is the rule. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't hate people in blue. I have police officers in our church. I have police officers that have retired. I have police officers that were part of the first police class when the federal court uh, uh, judged in our city that the police department had been willfully segregated and that it must desegregate. I have black officers both men and women who are part of that original class who have now retired as police officers as well as current police officers and state peacekeepers that we call the highway patrol in our state and they're in our church and they know that if they do right I commend you but if you do wrong we have a standard to hold and so that's created conversations that have produced what some people call a racial divide some people have said, y'all need to get over slavery because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I said, is that what Jehovah told Israel? In fact, what he told them was the exact opposite of getting over it. He said, every year at a feast called Passover, you're supposed to remember that you were slaves 400 years. You're supposed to tell it to your children, to your children's children. You need to tell them as you eat bitter herbs how bitter it was. And then you need to tell them how I promised to bring you into a sweeter land. You need to tell them how I brought you out. You didn't bring you out. I brought you out with the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. And I brought you into this land where you stand. God told Israel to remember. But when didn't Jesus become enough for us? And so now we've gone back to people say, get over it, move forward. That's over with. Don't go into a Jewish community and tell them that because even after World War II, they sounded the trumpet. The world should never forget that six million people died in the Holocaust. So now we deal in unprecedented times having conversations about racial divide. But not only are there those divides in unprecedented times, global pandemic, political divide in the community and in the church, racial divide. But now the church seems to, on our watch in the West, have begun to use new experiments to see who the church is going to be in the next 20 years. I'm telling young church leaders now, before you dismantle what has brought us so far, 
maybe you need to find out where the load bearing walls are because anyone who's ever done restoration in a home or restoration in a house know that there are certain walls you cannot move because if you move those walls everything will collapse and so now the church is redefining itself according to the culture and not asking the founder of the church Jesus what was your intention for your community and I'm asking the question when did Jesus stop being enough it's unprecedented times so I went back and said Jesus at the beginning of this pandemic, no, at the end of it, after a presidential election and then January 6th, uh, the insurrection at the White House, we had a network of local churches uh, conference call. It was on Zoom. It's a monthly uh, Zoom meeting on Friday from 10 to 12. And I asked a question, and I know they were waiting for in anticipation because several commented after the meeting was over, we thought you were going to talk about the election and what just happened. And I got on there and I said, what did Jesus tell us to do? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Because it's possible for us to be like little kids where mama and daddy go away and they tell us what to do in the house while they're gone. And then while they're gone, we start doing all kind of other stuff. He told us to make disciples. Now, as we talk about making disciples, which is one of the passions of your apostle and my friend, Billy Johnson, listen, it takes knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to make disciples. You and I need to have knowledge. That is that we need to acquire the truth about what a disciple is. And a disciple is, and, and the knowledge means that we acquire and we live out the truth. We need wisdom. And wisdom just means that we give application to the truth and we need understanding. And understanding simply means I so comprehend truth to the extent that I can repeat results at will. Knowledge, I acquire the truth. Wisdom, I apply the truth. But understanding, I so comprehend truth that I can repeat results at will. When you understand how to make a pound cake, we don't ever have to put a sign on that this is my special pound cake. Because I can repeat results at will. Now, a disciple is a student who knows what his rabbi knows his rabbi is his teacher he can do what his rabbi does and he is like his rabbi that's a disciple a disciple knows what his rabbi knows he can do what his rabbi does and he is like his rabbi his teacher you see a disciple of Jesus Christ is one that has the life character and nature of Jesus in them when you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you actually have the life of Jesus in you. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which, called, which is called the manifestations of the Spirit. There's tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. Those manifestations say something. There's a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. Those manifestations reveal something. And then there's also miracles and faith and healing. Those manifestations do something. So not only do I have his life in me, but I also have his character. 
which is character Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 where it says that the fruit of spirit is love joy peace long suffering faithfulness gentleness meekness against such there is no law I have his character and your character is who you are when nobody's around who you are when you're out of the sight of friends family and the public your character is who you are all by yourself your reputation is what people know about you but but your but your character is what God knows about you So we have the character of Jesus Christ. We have the nature of Jesus Christ. And that comes from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And the nature of Jesus comes when you and I respond the way Jesus would respond in any given situation. I was in a public meeting one time and they asked me, Reverend, what do you think about one issue? And I was quiet for a moment. They said, do you need us to repeat the question? I said, please. And then they said, do you need more time? And I said, no, I'm a member of a government. And when you're an ambassador for government, you can't speak what you think. You got to give government policy. They kind of looked. I said, I'm part of the kingdom of God. I said, I'm part of another government. I'm a diplomatic official sent from the highest order into this earth to represent that order. And I said, when you're an ambassador, you don't speak for yourself. You speak for the one that sent you. And then I was able to give a response from a kingdom perspective on the issue that was at hand. A disciple is one that has the life, character, and nature of Jesus working in them, through them, and then among them. Listen, making disciples is a transformational process. It's a transformational process in imparting the life, character, and nature of Jesus to seekers and the followers. What does it take to make a disciple I want to deal with this morning? Because what, you know, leading an unprecedented time, we cannot forget our mandate. Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 28 simply says this. In verse number 16, it says, And the eleven disciples went away to Galilee into the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. This is post-resurrection account. And, uh, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. It says, go therefore and teach the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. New King James says about that in verse 18 through 19 and 20. It says, and Jesus came to his disciples saying unto them, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Instead of going and teaching all nations, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded them and lo I'm with you always even unto the end of the age amen how do we make a disciple how do we lead in unprecedented time well first of all you and I must understand our original mandate and our original mandate is not to make good church members but make disciples and there's a difference between the crowd church members and disciples you see, we've been out of church, out of the corporate gathering of God's people. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about out of the corporate gathering of God's people. That is the church, the assembly, the community. We've been out of community for about 18 months. It takes 30 days to form a habit. 
Saints of God have had 18 months to form a new habit. And now some have had re-entry and now we are reopened in our buildings. And there are people returning. And men in our city have said, well, Scales, how do you feel, man, about so few people returning? I said, do a study. I'll minister on this tomorrow morning about the word remnant. I said, because God promised if you go into captivity, a remnant is going to return. You and I need to understand that you ain't dealing with the masses no more. You're dealing with the remnant. The word remnant is used about 92 times in our Bible. And if you're going to lead today, you need to understand remnant scriptures. Look at your neighbor and say, come tomorrow morning. <laughs> Those who have returned. Those who have returned. And friends, Jesus said, now I'm going away and I'm leaving you here. Twelve of you, one disqualified, eleven of you, you're a remnant. You're what's left after my passion, after my death, after my resurrection. You're what's left. How do we make disciples? First of all, understand it's a transformation. It's a formational process. And that means that you and I are going to take raw material and start with sometimes what looks like nothing and wind up with something. We're going to move it. Galatians 4.19 says, My little children of whom I labor in birth again until Christ be formed in you. God wants to form something in us. And friends, it's a formational process. The discipler, that's you and I. How do we lead in unprecedented time? Must have a vision and a picture of the end in mind before we begin. That's called a concept. A concept. You and I need to know what God desires to do in people. And in the building process, many times you come up with an ideal, but after an ideal, you begin to crystallize it and it comes into a concept and then they do what they call a conceptual drawing. That conceptual drawing might include an elevation of what it's going to look like when it's finished. Sometime in a construction site, they'll put a wall around it to keep the dust from going on the road, but keep people from rubbernecking when they go by the construction site. They know that people will want to know what's going on behind the wall, so they put a picture of the concept out front so the folks will have an expectation that's what's coming. And before you and I make disciples, you and I need to know that's what's coming. That will keep you from being encouraged because it's already, but not yet. You might say already, but not yet. Yeah, it's already in the mind of the architect, but it's not yet manifested in the earth. There's a mountain called Space Mountain at Disney World in Florida. And when, Disney, and when Space Mountain was, was dedicated, Walt Disney had already died. Some people stood up and they said, it's a shame that Walt designed this and talked about this but he never saw it come to pass. One of his family's members stood up and they said, I'd like to correct one thing that was said. They said, someone said, my dad or my relative never saw it. He said, he saw it before all of us did. And friends, you and I need to have that concept so that we know what we're moving towards, conceptual drawings, bring us into agreement. And listen to me, it takes, it takes a long time sometimes to get the concept down. Because listen, agreement 
is important because agreement on definitions will keep us from having misunderstanding. Most of the time when married couples have misunderstandings because they had a disagreement on definition. Husband goes out. He says, I'll be back soon. Well, soon with, with a wife might mean within the hour. But if you come strolling in four hours later, that was not her definition of soon. Where you been? I said, I'll be back soon. Negro, you left here at 8 o'clock. It's now 12. And if we don't agree on definitions, we get misunderstanding. And so we need to have a concept. Now here, follow along with me. We'll have three points in this message today. First of all, I'd like to look at how do we define a disciple? What, what is the disciple from, from Jesus's purview and from his point of view? And he was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. Next of all, we'd like to look at what is the message of our rabbi? What, what did he preach? What did he teach? And we'd like to breeze through that. And we'd like to see what his concept was. What did he preach? And then finally, when we come in for a landing, I want to talk about practically what should be some of our methodology in making disciples today. And so first of all, what is disciple? Jesus starts off his ministry in Matthew, which is a messianic uh, book of the Bible. And when he looks at it, he, he begins to go out and he's in Galilee. Galilee was known, Galilee and Capernaum, northern Lake Galilee. They were known for producing rap teachers and rabbis. In fact, when you go to Capernaum today, there's an old synagogue there. And when you go to Galilee, old synagogue there, because out of their synagogues came teachers and rabbis. They were known to be developed in that particular area. And Jesus is walking in that area. And in Matthew chapter 4, 19, he says unto his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway, they left their nets and they followed him. Do you know that making disciples, it, first of all, is a call narrative initially, a call narrative, a call narrative. And immediately they left their nets and they begin to follow him. It's a call narrative. And when there's a call, there needs to be a response. The African-American preaching tradition talks about the call and the response. And so he said, follow me. And immediately they left unconditionally to follow him. When a rabbi wanted to make someone a disciple, that process didn't start when the rabbi began to teach the disciple. It started way back when he was young. You see, when a Hebrew young man and young woman were born, when they reached age six, from age six to age 12, they had what they called best affair. And that was a time when they learned Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy out of Hebrew scriptures. When they first started learning, they learned Hebrew alphabet. And Hebrew alphabet is not like American alphabet. Each letter has a word picture to it. And they would learn it. What the, what the teacher would do is sometimes they would write that letter on a slate in honey and then they would have the student say the word and then the student would lick the honey off the piece of slate that was on his board and they would quote Psalm 19 that says his word is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb and from age 6 to age 12, they would learn Torah. The males at age 12 would have what they call a bar mitzvah, which means a time when they quoted large portions of Torah, and they were welcomed into the male community as a man at age 12. 
Then the, at age 12, the young man would go back home and for the next 18 years, he would learn whatever his family craft or business or entrepreneurship was. That's what we would do from age 12 to, to age uh, 30. However, if he did well in Beth Sefer, learning Torah, and he was the best of the best, then a teacher would come along and say, you are dead good at that. Why don't you come to Beth Midrash? And Beth Midrash was done from ages 13 to 15. And there they would learn the Tanakh. Not only memorize Torah, but memorize all the prophets and memorize the writings. And if they memorize all of Torah and if they memorize all of the writings, the prophets and the writing, the Tanakh, then all of a sudden they would be tested. And if they were the best of the best, at age 16, a rabbi could come and say, man, I heard you at Bet Mithrash. And he would say, and I heard you quote the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And he would say, follow me. From age then, 16 to age 30, almost a 15-year discipleship process. That disciple will follow the discipler, his teacher. And notice in Israel, there were rabbis, but there were also teachers. And, and, and one time in Matthew 23, Jesus rebuked. He said, woe to you teachers of the law. That was one level. But a rabbi was one that taught and interpreted Torah, the prophets, as well as the writings. 16 to age 30, they would follow that rabbi. And as they would stay so close to him that his dust would get on him. They wanted to walk in his dust. And, and, and what kind of dust are you leaving behind? And they would follow him and he would teach them. And after a while, his teaching was known as his yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And do what? Learn of who? When didn't Jesus become enough? For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is like next 15 years. They would follow him. And after that 15 year period, after he says, follow me. And then after he says, come unto me and take my yoke upon you. Then he would say, now you go ye. Follow me. Take my yoke upon thee. Learn of me. And then go ye. You know the problem in church today? We have a people that start off following, then they want to go. And they haven't learned anything. And they have not gotten joined together with Jesus. Because a yoke was to connect you with something. Think about that. By the time of the end of that 15 years, those disciples would know what their rabbi knew, could do what their rabbi do, and they were like their rabbi. Jesus comes along, and he's from Galilee where rabbis are created, and he takes a whole different pattern. First of all, he goes along the banks of the river and he finds some young 16-year-old and now church history has described the disciples. They weren't old men with beards. They were young teenagers. 
Jesus himself was only 30. And he goes along the seaside, and these guys are fishing. He goes along a tax booth, and he's collecting taxes. What do we know about the, about the disciples? First of all, we know that the disciples were working people. Everybody Jesus chose had a job. It's easy to teach working people how to lead. What's tough to do is to teach a leader how to work. <laughs> And some people want all of the benefits of ministry without putting in the work. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm going to be watching you. And friends, they started doing the work. And so Jesus chose working people. What, do we do? what does that also tell us about the rabbinical and the discipleship model? What that tells us is that these guys weren't the best of the best. Because if they were the best of the best, a rabbi would have picked them up and they would have been in rabbinical school following a rabbi. They weren't even the best. Because they were the sons of Zebedee. In other words, at age 12, I wasn't even the best, so I started learning how to fish. At age 12... I wasn't the best, so I learned accounting and the tax business. Jesus went out and chose folks that were just ordinary folk. Look at your neighbor and tell them, that's why there's hope for you. Because some of you have put your destiny on hold, trying to be the best of the best, and Jesus works with ordinary people. He said, you have not chosen me. I chose you. Instead of a 15-year journey, Jesus put him in a three-and-a-half-year journey. That's why I like my motto for leadership, Jesus Christ. And when didn't Jesus become enough? He put him in a three-year journey. And he said, at the end of this three years, you're going to know what I know, be able to do what I do. You're going to be like me. In the middle of that journey one day, he's had a busy day of ministry in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 25. I'll speak the narrative rather than read the text this morning. This will keep our virtual audience engaged. And, and Jesus has had a long day of ministry. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, a little narrative come. He says, he puts them in a boat and he sends them to the other side. And he said, I'll meet you on the other side. They go across the Sea of Galilee, which is really a large uh, freshwater lake. And while they're there, a storm hits. When the storm hits, they're out there wrestling with the waves back and forth. And Jesus comes walking on the stuff they're struggling with. Finally, Peter, they, they think that they're seeing a ghost. And they said, no, that's Jesus. And Peter said, man, if that's you, you know, Peter, he's probably the oldest of all the disciples. And some speculate he might have been older than Jesus. He might have considered Jesus a little brother, which is why he always was correcting him. And Peter said, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. And Jesus said, come on. Peter goes out there and he starts walking on the water. And then the text says, and then he saw the wind and the rays and the waves. And it says, and he began to sink. When he began to sink, that's a fascinating 
peace there because as he began to sink uh, because of those waves in that particular text, as he began to sink, Jesus reaches out his arm and picks him up and pulls him out of the water. And you know what? He sunk, but then they walked again. Look at your neighbor and say, you can sink, but you can walk again. Don't let a failure cancel out and paralyze you and disqualify you from your future. Peter walked again. They're walking back to the boat. And Jesus said unto him, after they're walking back to the boat, he starts having a conversation with Peter. He says, uh, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, picked him up, carried him back. He says, oh, thou little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, preachers have done an extraordinary job on this text because I've had a preacher one time have me up shouting, painting the winds and the rain and talking about how you can see the effect of wind, but you can't really see wind. He said he actually saw the wind and the waves. And, and oh, man, he worked us into a tizzy. And Jesus came out and saved him. And all of that is true, and that's good preaching. But I'd like to add to the conversation. Because he said, and he started doubting when he saw the winds of rain. No, he had seen the wind and the waves in Matthew 14, and they were wrestling with it in the middle of the sea, and, and, and they were struggling. They thought they were going to drown. That wasn't their effect. When they're walking back to that ship, and Jesus said, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? I believe that Jesus was asking, you've been following me all this time. Why didn't you believe that you could know what I know? that you could do what I do and you could be like me. And if I could walk on water, why did you doubt that you could be like me, that you could know what I know, do what I do and be like me? They get back, Jesus puts them back in the boat and guess what happens? The next verse in the next chapter says, and then they go to the other side. If Marianne Brown was here, she said, let me tell you why Jesus put him back in the boat. She said he put him back in the boat because he never told him to walk across the Galilee. He told him, get in the boat and meet me on the other side. And some of y'all are out the boat and you're sinking and Jesus is going to put you back in the boat and say, do what I told you to do. I didn't tell you to walk out there. I told you to get in the boat and meet me over there. And I told you to get in this boat. Why did you doubt that you could know what I know, do what I do, and be like me? See, making disciples, it takes time. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, talks about the 10,000-hour principle. And he talks about if you do anything uh, for 10,000 hours, after a while, he says, uh, he says you will master that. And, and the rule is simply this. Mastery comes after someone practices one skill, like playing a violin for 10,000 hours. Have you ever thought about Jesus taking these ordinary people for three years? And they were with him every day. Think about sleeping hours. Let's say six hours you slept, 18 hours a day. Let's say six days a week. That's 108 hours. Eight hours, 108 hours times 52 uh, weeks. That's 5,616 hours. Over a period of three and a half years, that's 19,656 hours. 
Malcolm Gladwell says, listen, if you want to be an expert, do the same thing. For 10,000 hours, you'll be an expert. But then Jesus poured his life into these men in three and a half years, about 20,000 hours. He goes on to say, if you do anything for 20,000 hours, you become a master expert. That's why people came to Jesus and said, good master. What must I do to be saved? He said, why do you call me good? And listen to me. He poured his life into their lives and they became world changers. Making disciples is what we are producing. Men and women who will change the world. Church members are the crowd. But in this unprecedented time, we're dealing with the remnant, those who have returned from captivity. Look at your neighbor and say, be here tomorrow morning. Now, what does it take to make a disciple? What it takes to make a disciple is just proper messaging. Proper messaging. Proper messaging. Because first of all, to know what, you, what your rabbi knows, you need to know what he's talking about and know what he's teaching. And, and proper messaging from the Tanakh, you got to know Torah, you got to know... Uh, you have to know the prophets and the writings. I call them the Hebrew scriptures. I have a lot of rabbi friends I deal with in dealing with justice issues in our city. And when they hear the word Old Testament, they cringe because it's not old to them. It's their current scriptural study. And so I talked to a rabbi and he said, you know, when I hear Christians call Torah Old Testament, he says offensive. And see, when I consulted our constitution, it said, give no offense to the Jew or to the Greek or to anyone of the house of God. That's what our constitution says. And so I said, how would you like us to refer to Torah, the prophets, and the right? He said, we would prefer that you use the term Hebrew scriptures. So that's what I call them, the Hebrew scriptures. Hebrew scriptures. When you hear some of these messianic rabbis say, the Jews would tell you in the Old Testament, they would never say Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, messaging was important. Now listen, for you and I to be relevant today, for, for the remnant that's returning, you and I need to understand, first of all, our messaging needs to be clear. And there's been a lot of muddled messages in our yoke over the last few years. People have prophesied stuff that didn't come to pass and wouldn't even apologize or try to reach, set the date. Now, when you prophesy a specific date that something's supposed to happen, that's down in stone. Our message needs to be clear. Look at your neighbor and tell them, clear up your prophecy. And if you don't hear from God, keep your mouth shut. And that's a good moment for a praise break right there. Message needs to be clear. Needs to be clear. I think I heard Billy Johnson, apostle, say, you know, listen, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's going to be a fog in the pews. Whatever's done up here in moderation is going to be amplified out there. During our leadership summit, I shared about being sick on a plane one time. And I said I was sick, and, and I knew as I was praying, the Holy Spirit said, take communion. 
We were getting ready to take off. We were getting ready to go on an 18-hour, no, a 16-hour flight. And I said, listen, we're getting ready to go on this long flight. I said, I'm not feeling well. I just need to take communion. I said, do you have any grape juice? She said, no grape juice, sir. I said, you have any crackers? No crackers, sir. And I said, well, do you have any bread on here? She said, sir, we don't have any bread. I said, well, do you have any kind of fruit juice? She said, I can't get to the fruit juice right now. We're getting pre-flight. I said, what do you have? She said, I have a pack of Oreo cookies and a Coca-Cola. I said, well, bring it. She brought me an Oreo cookie, Coca-Cola, had it in the glass. I said, Lord, this is your body. Yo, Jesus is black. I held it up. I said, I want to thank you that your body bore my sickness and carried my diseases. And I said, and I'm taking the bread of life. I do this and remember you. I ate that Oreo and I picked up that Coca-Cola and I said, this is your blood. It represents it. And I said, and thank you for washing us in the blood and stabbing your covenant. Drink that. Flight took off. They said, you can now recline your chairs. You can open up your tray tables. I laid back, went to sleep for about three hours, woke up, totally healed. That's what I shared at the summit. My son-in-law and my daughter have a newborn, and they were at home watching the, the virtual, the virtual broadcast. By the time I get home, my son-in-law, Marshall Ziegler, has sent me a picture. He said, we took communion with y'all tonight because we were taking communion that night at the church. He had a double-stuffed Oreo. <laughs> and a two liter of vanilla Coca-Cola. What's done in moderation in the pulpit will be done in excess with the people. And then he wrote under there, I just want to be like my bishop. <laughs> Friends, you and I know that we need to clear up our message. Our message needs to be clear. Next thing I put in our notes, it needs to be concise. That needs to be, it needs to be on point. Stop giving people Saturday night specials on Sunday morning. Prepare. If the Holy Ghost shifts, fine, but you had something to say. It needs to be compelling. That is that we need to preach in such a way to persuade people, clear and concise, on point and compelling, persuasive to people. Our messages need to be convicting and it all calls people to rethink what they've been doing and what they've been saying and where they're going. It should be convicting and that God can use conviction to point us to the area that he wants to change our lives in. It needs to be communal. In other words, it should not just be for our small group, but it should be far reaching to everybody. Communal messages not only speaks to the individual, but also speaks to the community. Our message must be clear, concise, compelling, convincing, uh, convicting as well as communal. What did Jesus preach? Matthew 3, verse number 1, English Standard Bible, which I understand that this church uses sometime. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached on the kingdom of heaven. That's where it's from, and the kingdom of God. That's who owns it. See, his message was real. It was relatable. It was reliable. It was relevant. It was what everybody else was talking about. And it was relational. It was real. He was authentic in what he preached. Think about the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
You know why? When he gets finished speaking, they said they were amazed at his word and the authority by which he spoke because he didn't speak at the rabbis because the rabbis would, would quote things like the Mishnah and what other rabbis were talking about. That's what the rabbis always said. Well, Rabbi Hillel says this and Rabbi Shammai says this and, and, and Rabbi Gamaliel says it. Jesus said, you heard it said? Now I say. And they said, whoa, we ain't never heard nobody talk about that. He quoted himself. Years ago, when I was learning how to do management, I, I studied Peter Drucker. I read Peter Drucker, who was the definitive authority on management. Then Drucker, after he read all these books, even on nonprofit management, he came back and wrote a book called Drucker on Drucker. He wrote a commentary on his previous books. <laughs> when you get to the place that you could just quote yourself and say, you heard it said, but I say, I'm the authority here. He spoke something that was real relatable. He knew divorce and adultery and, and anger were all issues that they were talking about. He said, you heard it said y'all should not commit murder. He said, I'll tell you if you're angry with your brother. He says, you committed murder already. He said, where did he get that from? Cain. Because when Cain killed his brother, when God comes, he doesn't talk about the murder. He said, why are you angry with your brother? He understands that anger unchecked turns into murder. So while we're trying to reduce murder, maybe we ought to go back and deal with people anger issues. Look at your neighbor and say, why are you so mad? Anger is emotion given by God, but the Bible says be angry. In other words, you can be angry, but, okay, now you're whispering, see. Okay, now you're whispering. It says be angry, but sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let that thing multiply and increase and then turn into something else. Jesus talked about anger and Jesus talked about all of those in light of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, 14, 1, 14, English Standard Version. It says this, it says, now after Jesus, uh, John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the, king, uh, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. He said, believe in the gospel. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the community as God imagines it. It's the community that God imagines in heaven that is now being manifested on planet earth. It is the community as God imagines it. Now, think with me for a moment. I'm going to speed. Everybody say, put on your tennis shoes. Because in Ezekiel, when they go into Babylonian captivity after their sin, and they had three sins in Israel that brought them into Babylonian captivity, they forsook the Sabbath. They stopped taking the day off. Second of all, idolatry. It was communal idolatry, not just individual idolatry. The whole community went into idolatry. And third sin was the treatment of the poor. Walter Storff in his book, Christian Foundations, talks about the quartet of the vulnerable the widow the orphan the international and the poor they travel together through the hebrew scriptures the widow the orphan the stranger king james or the international niv and and the poor and he said, listen, they violated the poor. God brought them in Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel's in Babylonian captivity, and he's called, to do an, he's called to do an assessment on their captivity. 
Now, the Lord in Deuteronomy, when they come out of Egypt, has already told them how to form community. He gives them, uh, you can put a triangle in your notes, those who have them. Those who have my notes, it's already there. For those who, uh, who have notes uh, that you're taking, put a triangle there. And he gives them, he said, now, when you come out of Egypt, I want you to be like the Egyptians. Don't be like those other folks. He says, here's what you do. He placed a triangle at the top of your triangle, put down sacred system, sacred system. And the sacred system, Deuteronomy chapter six, was designed to pass on the values of God to the entire congregation. Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord our God, he is one. Why is that important? Because the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six, is a departure from the rest of the Torah. Up until this time, God has spoke to individuals, and there are some evangelicals that tell you that the entire Bible is to individuals, never to a community never to a system that's what they tell you our evangelical brothers they say the bible deals with personal sin never corporate sin and i said well then you got some problems in romans chapter five because in romans chapter five it says in adam all died you and i are not sinners because of what we did we're sinners because we're human for from one blood has he created us all he takes it all the way back to adam and said you are a sinner not because of what you did or didn't do but because of your granddaddy adam he said that's pretty bad news i'm paying for the sins of my father no it's not as good news but in christ even though you were a sinner everybody can be made righteous not because of what you did but because of what he did and the sacred system was to pass down the values of the kingdom of God into everybody else in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse number 1 tells us it's pass on that value down on the lower right hand corner put down a political system and that is Deuteronomy 16 8 16 8 through 20 I'll quote it in narrative form he tells them now when you go into the land in Deuteronomy 16 8 he says you will appoint officials when you go into the land and then he says this justice only justice they shall do they shall not show partiality they shall not take bribes we don't take bribes today we take campaign contributions he said, because a bribe will pervert the way of justice. And then he says, justice you shall do to all that are in the land. The political system and those officials that were public were to ensure justice. Deuteronomy chapter 16, Torah 6 through 20. Then he says, also you need to have... He says, uh, in economic systems, so in Deuteronomy 15, the chapter before, 1 through 5, Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 5, he says there, he says, now listen, when you come into the land, he says, you're supposed to have a fair and equitable distribution of all of God's bounty. He said, I'm bringing you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you're going to move into houses you didn't even build. You're going to drink out of wells you didn't even dig. You're going to reap harvest from fields you didn't even plant. He said, when you come into the land, don't you forget the Lord, but you remember that it's the Lord thy God that gave you power to get wealth to establish his covenant with his people. What was his covenant? Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm doing 
doing all of this so that it will go well with you all. Deuteronomy 6 is a departure from the Bible because in Genesis, God spoke to Adam and the, the man and the woman. Then he spoke to Noah, the man who saved them in the flood. Then he speaks to Abraham. Then he speaks to Isaac. Then he speaks to Jacob. Then he speaks to Joseph through a dream. Then he speaks to Moses at a burning bush and in the mountain. But when he gets to the community in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he ain't speaking to individuals anymore. He says, here, O Israel, I'm talking to the community. And the kingdom of God is a community as God imagines it. God said, I'm talking to the community now. So stop replacing you where the Bible says Israel, because when it says Israel and Judah, it's speaking to the community, not just to you. And in the West, we have personalized and made in first person the entire Bible when God is speaking to the community. And he says, according to the economic system, he said, I'm bringing you to a land and there should be fair. And he said, an equitable, not equal, equitable distribution of my bounty. So to go well with all. So there will not be any poor in the land. He said, he said, every seven years, if you have a slave, release him. Every seven years. Every seven years. Not every 400 years. Not every 300 years. Not every 100 years. Every seven years shall be a year of release. That puts America in real trouble this so-called Christian nation. Did we release slaves after seven years? Okay, somebody needs, swivel your head the one way you know it needs to go. Did we release slaves after seven years? So it was a year of release. He also said every seven years, you gotta release all debt. Look at your neighbor, say, I wish they would. Go ahead, tell them. And instead of Israel following that principle, I think the rabbis told me Israel did it twice when they led, left out Egypt. They did it one seven year, one seven year, and then they said, that's too much, we're letting too much revenue go. They switched to a jubilee every 50 years. And they did that for almost 70 times and God says you're going to suffer one year in captivity for every year you didn't do what I told you to do and that's why they went into 70 years of Babylonian captivity because they ignored that year of release every seven years and he said for every year you ignored it you're going to do a year in captivity I'm talking about the community as God y'all are part of this kingdom right Y'all do read the Constitution, right? Okay. Do you read what I read? <laughs> okay, come on. So it was a year of release. Now, listen, let me couple this together. Go ahead. I'm, I messed some people's mind up. That's why when Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer, he said, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Honor God. Thy kingdom come, the community as you imagine it come. Your will, your desire come in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Our, 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 our. Not my daily bread. Our daily bread. I want everybody to be fed. And then the early translation said, and he said, and forgive us our debt. He prayed for debt forgiveness. Somebody said, go back and pray the Lord's prayer again. Because the Western mind had made it all about sin. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debt. As we forgive our debtors, 
forgive us the debt that we created, debt forgiveness, give us a year of release the way we release others. And then when he talks about what that clause meant, he talks about debt forgiveness. He said a certain man owed a whole bunch of money. He went to his creditor, he arrested him, was gonna throw him in debtor's jail. He cried and he begged and he let him go. He goes out and he finds somebody else that owes him a little debt. Instead of releasing him, he throws him in jail. And when the master heard about it, he turns that guy and puts him in jail and saying, let the tormentors at him. We need to rethink our economic and stop talking about, I got nine because I worked hard. Really? God said it was I that gave you power to get wealth so that we could establish the covenant. That's the community as he imagines it. Now, listen, he says now, Listen, I know that these systems will get out of order. Sacred system get out of order. Political system get out of order. Listen, economic system will get out of order. He says, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call prophets that if you ever get out of order, the prophets are going to call you back into a line. That's what prophets were designed to do. God tells them about the prophets in Deuteronomy Chapter 18, verse 15 through 19, 15 through 19, uh, eight, God tells Moses, he said, now after you, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. And Moses spoke to a governmental system and the system was called Pharaoh in Egypt. It was a system. He spoke to them and he said, and he will speak for me the words of the people and the, the people heed my words. Then they will be released. He said, but if they do not heed my words, he said, I will hold them accountable prophets are supposed to hold sacred systems, economic systems and political systems account, uh, accountable. Look at your neighbor and say I don't know what our prophets are doing today because prophets are talking about all kind of other stuff rather than what the Bible said that they were supposed to do and then you know what the people were supposed to do where you have a sacred system on the top political system on the bottom right Economic system on the bottom left and the middle prophets so everybody accountable. The people were just called upon in Deuteronomy chapter 6 again just to obey God. Look at your neighbor just say, just obey God. Over here in the band, just tell each other, man, just tell them, just do what God told you to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be easy. Over here in this section, just tell your neighbor, do what God told you to do. Now, over here, just tell them, just obey God. Yeah, this is a hard section right here. Tell them, obey. Okay, yeah, that's good. Over in this section, tell him, just obey God's word. He just said, if you obey me, it will go easy with you. Y'all remember we used to sing that song, Trust and Obey? For there's no other way to what? To be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Now, what does Ezekiel do? In the notes that I prepared for you and the ones I speak, in Ezekiel 22 through 25, uh, 22, 25 through 30, Ezekiel assesses all these systems. I said I was going to fly. And what he found out is all these systems went crazy. Sacred systems started ex exercising control. And he mentions all of these systems I just described. That's where I get it from, Ezekiel 22 and Deuteronomy. A prophet and a prophet. And they exercise control. In Deuteronomy and in Ezekiel chapter uh, 22, 26. The political system begin to oppress people, and that's what our political systems are doing now. I don't care who's in office, people feel oppressed. 
Listen, listen, the officials and the economics, it says that they began to exploit people. In fact, about the economic system, those officials, he said, man, you guys are vicious. He says, you're acting like lions. You're devouring people. You're taking their treasure. You're making many widows. They have become oppressive. He said, political system was like wolves. Difference between lions and wolves. Lions can hunt by themselves and they eat their prey alive. They kill them and while their heart is still beating, they're still eating their flesh. And some people feel like society is eating them alive right now. Wolves hunt in packs though, packs. They hunt on that and you know who they, they target? They target the young and there's a target out on our young people now. They target the, the old, the elderly, and they also target the sick. The young, the elderly, and the sick are who wolves target. They hunt and pack. They nip at their tendons so they can't run anymore. When they finally fall down, they eat them up and devour them. He said, that's what your system's been on. He says about the prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 22, he said, you have begun to whitewash all of these lies that are being told when people say they heard from me and they say, thus saith the Lord when the Lord has not said Whitewash means you try to make it look good even though it's a lie behind the back. And I cannot believe what happened this last political cycle where we had sacred people lining up with unrighteous folk. Saying, thus saith the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. They use seduction. Well, when, the, when all the systems are falling, when the economic system, no, when the sacred system falls, no values being passed on, economic systems falling, political systems falling, prophets are holding people accountable. What do people do? People just start acting crazy. They start exploiting one another. They started abusing one another. And you know what God goes to work now? He said, and I look for somebody. I look for somebody that would stand in the gap and make up the hedge. He said, and I found no one. A lot of us in our kingdom making disciples, instead of making disciples, we become good gap finders, but not good gap repairers. We went to London a few years ago, and in London they have, we call them subways here, they have what they call the tube. And between the platform and getting on the tube, there's a gap. And there's big signs around that said, mind the gap, mind the gap. In other words, when you get ready to step on the tube, there's a place where you can really fall down or trip, so you got to mind that. God doesn't call you to mind the gap. He calls you to repair the gap. Don't know that there's a problem there and keep on talking about it. Ask God to cause you to be a restorer of the breach and a repair of the wall and a repairer of the past that dwell in. That's disciple making. And the Lord is still looking for someone to stand in the gap and to repair the breach. And the earth is in trouble. When it's in trouble, God looks for godly leadership. Community as he imagines it is a community where he wants it to go well for all, from those from the youngest all the way up to the elderly. He wants it to go well with all. If that's our, if that's our mandate, and if that's our message, a new community, ecclesia, community, make disciples, what's our method? So I cover this final point, bring this in for a landing. Listen, we must have the ability, we must have agility in our methods right now. 
Most of y'all know that the church over the last 18 months has changed. The gathering of God's saints, God's community, God's visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. It has changed over the last 18 months. Many of us have moved to a combination of both in-person and virtual. Some people call it a hybrid. I don't use that word. I told it to apostle. I said, I don't use the word hybrid because the word hybrid is dangerous. Talked to my friend Stephen last night. Stephen works among horses. And he says sometimes he works with horses and donkeys, two different breeds. He said, but when a horse and a donkey get together, they produce what's called a mule. Some people would call it, I'm not cursing, a jackass. I asked Stephen, I said, are jackasses able to reproduce? He said, no, they're sterile. Anything that's a hybrid, whether you get hybrid seeds, it'll grow up one year, don't reproduce nothing. Anything that's a hybrid can produce one generation and then it's gone. Listen, you don't want to have a hybrid church because that means you can't reproduce nothing. You need to have a combination church. Are y'all hearing me this morning? And language is important. When you're a hybrid, you're not quite this, but you're not all the way there. And friends, today we need different methodology. We need a combination of things. Now think about this big idea as I close. The world has moved from an A2 world to an A17 world. In other words, an Acts 2 world to an Acts 17 world. Now in Acts chapter 2, you were dealing with one worldview but in Acts chapter 17, at Mars Hill, that is also called Oropagus, that is in Athens, you have moved to a Hellenistic Grecian world. We are using A2 methods in an A17 world. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost because he was an A2 world. Acts 2, they were familiar. They were monotheistic. They knew the law. They knew the prophets. They knew the writings. So he could quote Joel, and everybody knew who he was talking about. If they had memorized it, they had read it. He could quote that this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of. And the community was monotheistic. They also respected the law. They respected the prophets. And when he stood up and preached... 3,000 folks responded because he was on his home field advantage. It was an eighth to world. Look at your neighbor and say, that ain't the world we living in now. You go on, you quote Joel. They say, you mean Joel Osteen? <laughs> Friends, when they quoted Joel, they knew it. But when Paul goes to Mars Hill, even though he was a Jew, he was a Jew that was brought up in a Roman culture. He was used to Hellenistic Greeks. He goes to Mars Hill, and when he goes to Athens, that's the city that he's in. It's overrun with idolatry. It's polytheistic. They have no respect for the scriptures uh, and, and Torah. They have no respect. He can't go in there and argue initially from Torah and take a text and then preach. He has to use a methodology that is different to get him there. So his approach or his methodology changes. You must have a different methodology. And if you are holding on to your methodology when the world has changed all around you, you're going to be obsolete. The different concept 
and times demanded a different methodology. Hellenistic world, Paul knew his current context, and he goes into that community. He knows that it was polytheistic, it was questioning, it was philosophical. Philosophy is a love of knowledge. Phileo lagos, the love of words, the love of thoughts. These guys believe that you ought to know yourself, whereas the Hebrew world believed that you ought to know God. And today, there's a lot of people who exist to know themselves. I got to get to know me. It's all about me. They hurt me. Somebody told me, they, I said, when's the last time you've been to worship? I got church hurt. I said, what? They said, I got church hurt. I said, did anybody ever tell you you're in the army of the Lord? Now he said, yeah. I said, in the army, sometimes you get hit by friendly fire. Sometimes it's not on purpose. Somebody meant the mortar to drop over there, but it drops over here and it hits some of the friendlies. I said, you got hurt by friendly fire. You know what they do in the army? When you get hit by friendly fire, they take you out, take you to triage, get you fixed up, get you hitched up, and then put you right back with your unit. Get back to your unit. You can't quit because you got hit with some friendly fire. That's no excuse, soldier. Gird up your loins, that's King James. Get yourself together, that's Lafayette Scales. And get back in the fight. And they were questioning, philosophical and curious. And Paul reasons his sermon from a sign that was in the community. He said, I was walking through your community. I saw a sign to the unknown God. And he said, that unknown God that y'all was talking about, he said, I come to introduce y'all to him. And he said, because I found out y'all are most superstitious. All you Epicureans and Stoics and philosophers, I want to talk to y'all. He said, God, did he went to God? He said, they made everything. And from one flesh, he created all men to dwell on the face of the earth. And then he quotes one of their rappers. He said, even one of your poets say, it's in him we live and move and have our being. Y'all see how the methods change? And they say, oh yeah, man, we know that rap. In him we live, we move, we have our being. He said, that was one of your old poets. He said, I want you to know he at one time winked at your ignorance. But now he's commanding men everywhere to repent. And he said, and he is going to judge the world by one man. Now he's bringing it on down. And that man is the man, Jesus Christ, who is the savior of the world. And he will judge all men by that man. He starts off with a sign, moves to contemporary poetry or music, and then preaches a good God, a saving God, a creative God, a redemptive God, a forgiving God. And then he calls the community in to be a part of it. The text says some people laughed at him and said, oh, we, we'll come back and hear this again. Some people said it was nonsense, but the word says, but some remnant believed and followed him. You can't win an A-17 world with an A-2 methodology. Our core message must remain the same as I close. However, our methodology must change. In unprecedented times, we're going to have to remain relevant. And our methodology does, 
If our, methodolo- if our methodology doesn't change, we will be seen as irrelevant, unnecessary. We'll begin to get marginalized, and we will also be ignored. See, when society labels anything as unnecessary, it become, begins to systematically remove it. The systematic removal of anything from society is called genocide. The systematic removal of anything is called genocide. Jews were considered unnecessary. So Babylonians and Assyrians began to systematically eliminate them. Christians, when they emerged in Acts chapter 11, they were first called Christians in Antioch. They began to be seen as unnecessary. They began to do the systematic removal of them from society. Native Americans, when Europeans came here, were seen as unnecessary. They become marginalized. And then they begin the systematic removal of Native Americans from this society. Africans that were made slaves and brought here were seen as unnecessary and irrelevant. They were seen as chattel, property, only existing to bring us profit. And they begin the systematic removal of them from society. Systematic removal of any entity from society. It's called genocide. And when something is seen as unnecessary, Jesus said in our kingdom, in his discipleship model, if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and then just trampled on the feet of men. Look at your neighbor and say, you need to get your saltiness back. You need to get your influence back. Stop being influenced by everything. Look at, would you help me preach for a moment? Would you tell them just because it's on social media don't mean it's true. Stop listening to what everybody else said. Cause when didn't Jesus, when did Jesus not become enough? Let me give you some takeaways. Yeah, you can go ahead. You'll help get me out of this. <laughs> Let me give you a few takeaways. I don't want to become good for nothing thrown under the foot of man. I'm 70 years old. I received the Lord at 21, started preaching at 23 years old. 1974, I started preaching. I've come too far to be considered as irrelevant marginalized, unnecessary. I want to make sure that I'm able, at least in my context, to pass on in my generation what was passed on to me. It takes time to make a disciple, so stop rushing. I'm telling preachers to slow down. If you don't cover all your notes, you got them again next Sunday. Stop rushing. There's a difference between drinking from a water fountain and trying to get a drink from a fire hydrant. Now I'm a guest, so sometimes I know I'm a fire hydrant. But give people a drink of water. And it takes time to make a disciple. The mandate has not changed. We are still called to make disciples in this day. Our core message is sacred. Our core message must remain the same. It's sacred and it must remain the same. 
but our methods must shift. What we've done in our shifting methodology is we've determined we're going to take our church to the cross so that old things can die and pass away and all things can become new. That's why I love that song, At the Cross, At the Cross. We put our senior high school students for a year in a course called Anchors Away, Worldview and Leadership Training. Anchor Away is a company, Worldview and Leadership Training. We call our senior high school cell group or small group saved. Seniors assembling values and enriching destiny saved. Those students sign up for this class. We don't make them mandatory. So you're getting ready to go to the military, the marketplace, and the college. We're going to treat this like a college-age course. You're going to sign up. You're going to buy your material. It's going to be up to you to do your homework and to come to class. We teach them worldviews. We teach them world religions. We teach them about the cults and the occult. Those students stay after service from two o'clock in the afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, till about five. And most of the time, by the students' demand, they go all the way till six o'clock. And all we do is disciple them. There's some controversy over Josh McDowell, but we still use some of his core texts like evidence that demands a verdict. And how do you tell people that the Bible is reliable without using the Bible? Do text comparison to the bibliographical nature of the Bible, through archives like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because we're in an A17 world. You just can't go out there with a Shondalai and a Bubba Baha'i and a Warsu guy and a Wugu guy pan. You got to say something <laughs> that could keep some people's attention. And it's what people are talking about. Now we have students that take their manual that they got and the notebook that they got when they go to the college campus. Take it when they go to the marketplace. I have a student that's at Christ for the Nations right now. And I said, did you take your manual? She said, oh yeah, it's come in handy. We put our adults for discipleship and it started last Monday on Zoom because our methodology have to change. We used to meet at the church, now we're on Zoom called Understanding God Class, a course written by Patricia Beal uh, Goots. And uh, that book was written during the time of the charismatic movement where you had all these people coming out of all these different renewals and had all kind of theology. And they wrote a catechism called Understanding God that takes them through and asks a question, who is God and gives an answer and then gives scriptural response. It's a nine months course. But because we use the model of Jesus, we compressed it into about a six-month course now. And they come together every Monday night for about two hours and study theology. God, who is he? Jesus, who is he? Holy Spirit, who is he? The word of God, what is it? We study dispensational truth. These are just everyday saints. We study covenantal theology. We cover the sacraments of the church. 
We cover the elementary doctrines of the faith found in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, which is a blueprint that Paul gives us. If you win somebody to the Lord of Jesus Christ, these are the foundations you ought to lay. Repentance for dead works, faith towards God, doctrines of baptism, uh, 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 doctrines of baptism. It, it says, a laying on of hands, eternal uh, uh, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. People say, why do you put people through all of that? We want to make disciples, not just good church members. And you can't win an A-17 world using an A-2 strategy. You're going to hear a lot of people say, we need to get back to the book of Acts. When they say that, ask them what part. Because God rejected the first part after a while because it became closed. That A2 model got so self-contained that they wouldn't even let nobody else in unless you became like them. And there are a lot of churches, unless you think like me, vote like me, or dress like me, you can't be a part of who we are. That's why God said, I gotta leave y'all alone. I'm going to Antioch. Which was the second model in the book of Acts. And then between Antioch and Ephesus, which is the third model of the church, there's A2, Athens. I want to pray for us. Because how do we lead in unprecedented times? The way we lead and maintain our relevancy is do what our rabbi told us to do. Make disciples. Y'all ready to pray? First thing I want to pray at this cross right now is that God forgive us for what we've done to his church. Because we've turned it into something that if he came himself, he said, is that what I told y'all to do? Father, forgive us for the thing we made it. Father, we borrow from corporate America, from the marketplace, from popular voices outside of your church that don't even go to church and don't even know the theology of the church and yet they're telling us how to do church. We don't do church, we are the church. Forgive us as leaders for what we have made it. I pray in Jesus' name that you'll not only forgive us but you'll open our eyes so that we can see like you did with Gehazi and Elisha. Forgive us. Forgive us for the thing that we made it. And now reestablish your original mandate, your original message. And now establish by the Spirit your current methodology. Father, here at New Covenant, don't let us compete with everybody else in the city. Help us to do what you assigned us to do. Because we add a, fra a fragrance with the spice you've called us to be to the fragrance of the church in the greater Atlanta area. Help us to be our own salt. You may not have called us to be cumin. You may not have called us to be cinnamon. You may not have called us to be uh, a chili powder. But Father, you called us to be salt. So let us add our spice to what you told us to do. 
Not only forgive us, Father, but now empower us by the Holy Ghost. Father, put your methodology for today inside of us today. Father, it was at the cross that we first saw the light, but daily I die. Father, so I could see that light one more time. Father, put inside of us your current methodology. And then, Father, let us go out in the community and find out who it is that you're calling us to, to make disciples. But Father, let us make disciples of Jesus Christ. Let Jesus stand out as the model. Let him stand out as a message. And let him stand out as a ministry in Jesus' name. To your name be glory. To your name be honor. To your name be praise. I want everybody to stand for just a moment. Just stand up on your feet. I want you to make a confession to your neighbor and tell him I'm committed. Tell him I'm all in. But I'm in with his mandate to make disciples. I'm in with his message. The community as he imagined it the kingdom of God and I'm in with his methodology I'm changing whatever needs to be changed so that I can win some and see our community change say are you with me say are you with me answer the question let's go out and make disciples amen in Jesus' name, to his name be glory, to his name be honor, and to his name be praise. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord God. We hope you've enjoyed this message. For more information on other products and materials, please contact us at 770-484-9300, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m or visit our website at www.newcov.org. If you're in the Atlanta area, we invite you to join us for one of our dynamic services. Once again, thank you for receiving the living word of God from New Covenant Christian Ministries, where we are transforming all people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ.